0: I'm Athena Dixon, a co-host of the New Books and Poetry podcast. Today we're speaking with Eliza Griswold, whose forthcoming collection, If Men Then, was named one of the most anticipated books of 2020 by Vogue. Eliza Griswold is the author of an acclaimed first book of poems, Wide Awake Field, as well as the 10th parallel, parallel, Dispatches from the Fault Line Between Christianity and Islam, which won the 2011 J. Anthony Lucas Book Prize. Her translations of Afghan women's folk poems, I Am the Beggar of the World, was awarded the 2015 Penn Award for Poetry in Translation. She has held fellowships from the New America Foundation, the Guggenheim Foundation, and Harvard University. And in 2010, the American Academy in Rome awarded her the Rome Prize for her poems. Griswold, currently a distinguished writer in residence at New York University, is also the author of Amity and Prosperity, One Family in the Fracturing of America which was named a New York Times Book Review Notable Book of 2018, one of the Washington Post's 50 Notable Works of Nonfiction for 2018, and a New York Times Editor's Choice. She was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in General Nonfiction in 2019. Thank you so much for joining us today, Eliza. Thank you so much for having me. So one of the places I like to begin when I speak to people is about kind of like where their writing began, so could you give us a little bit of a background about how your journey as a writer started and kind of what brought you to the page?
1: Sure. So, you know, I mean, I think probably this is the true for most of us, but I was really processing the world through language as soon as I had language to process it. So like, you know, th- my parents used to have like the most horrific poem ever written that I wrote when I was like six about the wind um, posted on the fridge. Like it It wasn't that there was some innate talent as much as like, that's how I made sense of things um, by putting them down on a page.
0: And did you have like a particular um, point where you said, okay, this is something that I feel like I want to go forward with, or was there kind of like a, a graduate walk into your writing career?
1: There was no, I mean, I didn't think it could be a career. I didn't think growing up and all the way through college that writers could support themselves, you know, like they could afford to live as writers. I didn't quite know how people did that. And then my first job out of college, I went to work at a literary agency and it was there like handling honestly it it wasn't until i was like handling royalty statements and handling writers mail that i realized that people were able like it was a career it wasn't just an art um yeah it was a career it wasn't just an art
0: so now that you're um very firmly into a writing career do you have now some ways that you approach your work in general, things that bring you to the page or things that speak to you that cause you to actually begin to write?
1: So with poems, you know, I mean, I still I still struggle giving myself permission to write poems. And I don't know what that's about. It, I think it's just like the voice that says, are these good enough? Like, shouldn't you be out reporting on you know childhood cancer cluster in pennsylvania like shouldn't you be putting this this um this talent or this this calling to use for others i still struggle with that um but i love writing poems and so sometimes they just emerge sometimes i can kind of feel them coming on like with a kind of wistfulness or sadness that i carry and then i'm like oh that's like pms PPMS. That's like pre-poem syndrome. PPS. (laughs) Like, so I can kind of feel them coming on. And um, with this book, you know, I mean, it's been a decade since I finished my last book of poems. And it's not that I haven't been writing them. I write them all the time. Um, But what holds a collection together at this point in my career is a lot different than just like a greatest hits group of poems. So... You know, I scrapped a few second collections along the way until I ended with this one. Um, and th- I'm pleased with this because I'm funny out loud. I'm a funny person. And so much of my work is so serious that I don't think to get to bring some humor to the page, I, I, it makes me happy.
0: So I'm glad that you said that because one of my questions was, is that you write across genres, that you're not strictly a poet, you're not strictly a nonfiction writer, Um, that you have two nonfiction titles under your belt. Kind of how do you make the determination of what demands to be um, nonfiction versus what um, demands to be a poem? Is that something that you consider?
1: Not really, because most of my nonfiction isn't personal in any way, and most of my poems are. So already there's almost like an interiority, like two different geographies that I'm going to be turning to. Um, But, you know... I like that you sort of put them equally because I so often see myself as a nonfiction writer who rarely bursts into poems, you know. Um, But I do, I do see myself very much as grounded in in. I write poetry to to make sense of the world to myself, still, and a lot, most of what this book is is making sense of really womanhood, you know, really womanhood and some of the roles that come along with it, womanhood ambition. Um, like what would we call that? Synthesizing or reconciling different aspects of self, um, in, into adulthood.
0: So one of the things that's listed in the description of your book, which I thought was like wickedly beautiful, like just as a whole, um, was that it explores the world's fracturing through the collapse of the ego and that it's attempting to wrestle with itself. So you had mentioned a moment ago, how you'd, didn't see like a collection of poetry as like a greatest hits. So what was kind of the genesis of this particular collection and what made you want to put it together and kind of put it out into the world?
1: So, uh, so the genesis of this collection was really that year that I spent in Rome because that year marked a shift for me externally, as well as internally, where I still did conflict correspondence i mean that my up until then most of my career as a journalist had been spent in war zones and finding myself in rome was hard um and there's a poem that i think m- makes a lot of like it probably makes the best sense of that that i can called ruins in there um but i had trouble reconciling, I had trouble sitting still i had trouble thinking allowing myself to like take up space almost and um And that year was the beginning of wrestling with returning to the United States, like as a, you know, kind of after this period of self-imposed exile, um, what did it mean to, you know, have an apartment and have responsibilities that I long into my, like, 30s didn't have? You know, I, I avoided a lot of the trappings of adulthood Um, that people typically have um, by living this kind of nomadic um, peripatetic lifestyle that allowed me to evade things. It it allowed me to evade constancy with people. Um, It allowed me to evade aspects of myself I didn't like so much. It wasn't that I was running away. It was just that I could always be turning to things that were so much more important the the aspects of the world I was encountering were so much more important than any kind of personal like bio could be. Um, And then when I found myself slowed down extremely, like given this year to sit still, I began to really struggle with reconciling um, my interiority, like with the kind of vessel, with the container that I was in, um, which I tried deliberately not to pay too much attention to but it's also part of being human. So I think the poems are a lot about that. And I notice, I think they are a lot in dialogue with some of the recent conversations about womanhood. Um, some of my frustration with the recent conversations about womanhood, um, certainly becoming a mother, um, what that takes from us, how one makes sense of that, um, what ambition looks like, uh, you know, in, in, what I would call the early middle ages, which is where I am. Um, So those things, I hope that's helpful.
0: So I'm glad that you kind of mentioned this idea of womanhood, because as I was reading the collection, there was this very clear sense of women, not only being a healing force in the world, but also the strength and humanness of it as well. So I was reading poems like um, Circus Maximus, Asthma and Shield Maiden, and thinking that they juxtapose quite well against each other. Um, especially in the idea of the image of the men on the circuit in Circus Maxima, kind like in this endless loop of life. Um, and it's balanced against this discovery of the lands being held by the woman and then Asma's burial being kind of like a catalyst for a small measure of change, even if it was just for a moment. Um, so can you speak a little bit about how you approached, including kind of specific stories and remembrance of actual people in the book in a manner that was both deeply personal and kind of universal?
1: Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, that's what I was going for, so I'm glad. So Asma Safi, the book of poems, the book of Afghan poems that I translated, those are dedicated to her. That book is dedicated to her. She was a young translator, um, young woman. She wasn't primarily a translator. She was a young woman trying to make her way through the world, and um, she ended up working with me on that project. She had like a congenital heart condition and she she would, she, you know, it was the kind of thing that probably here if she were American would be solved in a month. And instead, you know, it's what she died from in her twenties. Um, but, but how do I, so her story was extremely particular and I learned so much about the world through her. Um, and that was really I learned so much. uh, Mostly, I think that one of the lessons that sort of runs through the book is what we take for granted and what we assume we know about ourselves and others. And, you know, Asma was a very seemingly conservative young Afghan woman who, to all appearances, had lived a pretty extremely sheltered life. She couldn't travel. You know, young Afghan women, many of them, they can't They can't travel on their own. They can't travel with another woman. They have to travel with a male family member and all of those things. And to lie with her at night in our sleeping bags um, in these heavily fortified villages where we were staying and to have her tell me these wild stories of of what her life was like, of the intrigue involved in her daily living, um, really opened my eyes to just. How how many assumptions that I make? Um, I'm not sure I'm really answering your question other than. So, you know, in in the particular is the universal. Right. And I think that's probably part of my training as a journalist or a nonfiction writer. I'm constantly thinking, well, when I meet people, what story are they telling? What larger story are they telling? How do they reflect our times? How does their struggle uh, illuminate larger issues, and so I think that that spills over into the poetry as well. Hopefully, again, with some humor. You know, I just I think, you know, a lot of what's going on for us in the world today, a lot of this movement, you know, of women's equality. Obviously, it's so overdue, and it's so exciting to see, but it's also not new. And so, how do we honor those who've come before us? Not with like some hashtag or a photo from like a suffragette march, but like in a deeper way, you know, like and so many of the battles that women fight outside of the United States are domestic battles. That's the first like you see it in Afghanistan a lot, you know, after the U.S. invasion with a new period of women's rights being ushered in with addition to like add that to a hundred Terrible flaws that came along with the US invasion. But one of the aspects was that women did have more movement. And one of the statistics we saw was this spike in domestic violence in Afghanistan, it was quite extreme. And it was impossible to know whether it was because this was finally being reported or if, to some degree, the first battlefield for many women was in their homes. Um, and Asma didn't fight that battle in a traditional way. She had a super supportive father um, who I write about as well, who really honored her as he would a son, which is rare in Afghan culture. But it's certainly, these quieter struggles, these people who are not validated or rewarded by the market or by being CEO or by being in TV, like those are the struggles that are more interesting to me.
0: It does very much. Um, so I'm very interested now in, in hearing a little bit more about how that translation project came to be, um, and why it was important to kind of have those voices and those stories and those pieces of literature out into the world.
1: Yeah. So yeah. that book came to be. So the Afghan project is a series of translations of Afghan folk poems called landays, and they are they are couplets. And they're 22 syllables long. And they, lande also means snake um, in Pashto, in the language they come from. And and they are biting little, they're little fierce ditties about what it means to be a woman in Afghanistan. Um, My favorite, I'll just tell you quickly, is when sisters sit together, they're always praising their brothers. When sisters sit together, they're always praising their brothers. When brothers sit together, they're selling their sisters to others. And, you know, that's pretty straight from the Pashto there. So I had come across these uh, and along with a friend of mine who is an amazing filmmaker um, who's worked in Afghanistan for about 30 years, we loved, there was a collection of these translations by like an Afghan intellectual dating back to the eighties. And we decided that we would travel around and collect a, contemporary series that looked mostly at the impact of the U.S. occupation, invasion, and occupation on the lives of Afghan women. So as opposed to interviewing women or talking constantly about honor crimes or the plight of women wearing burqas or whatever, we tried to listen to what women were singing and talking about themselves when no one was listening, um, and then bring those into the world. And, And again, that for me was a Project about defying, about exploding and inverting the idea of an Afghan woman as a mute blue ghost. Because the poems reveal a level of humor and suffering um, and sophisticated consciousness that's far beyond what I would ever think I understood of an Afghan woman's plight. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth.
0: We made this curse. Oh, carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end. What will I become?
1: Senwa saga Hellblade 2.
0: Play it now with Game Pass. So that is utterly amazing. Um, and one of the things I wanted to know was whether or not after that project was completed, um, did that have any kind of influence on your either creative nonfiction or your nonfiction writing or your poetry in ways that you didn't expect?
1: What a great question and absolutely yes. I mean, one, my poems, okay, here's the truth. I'm a little self-conscious about sometimes they they bang right up against journalism. Like I really deliberately use language that is accessible I like cadences. I do not prettify in a poem. I'm trying to do the opposite. And I think listening to these women sing these songs about like the size of their husband's manhood and like grief and what it meant to be married as a young woman to an old goat, like hearing the intimacy and rawness and how successful these poems were in their folk essence, I think gave me more confidence to speak from where I like to speak from without obfuscation or kind of archness or even concern that like, wait, is this poemy enough? Like that was just, that's just not, if in men, if men then is just, that's not a concern. If I can say it straight I, or if I can say it straighter, I'm going to go for that.
0: That kind of brings me to another question that I had. I was reading the first section of the book and throughout that first section, I had this idea of chaos rippling just below the surface of daily life, Mm -hmm. um, like a disruption of life that's oftentimes unexpected and it's not of a personal doing of those who are being observed. Mm -hmm. Um, The example of that was in um, Prelude to a Massacre with this image of the women beyond the wall hanging the laundry on the wire and these men coming with their boots and mustaches across the bridge and the idea there's this disruption of life about to happen. Um, Was there an idea when you were... Writing this collection of building this tension and embedding this darkness just below the surface of kind of our everyday lives um, that you wanted the readers to get? No, that is
1: just how I am. Like, that is just the nature of how I see the world. You know, that poem in particular, I love Wallace Stevens. I mean, you know, I love Wallace Stevens. And when I was reading that, you know, poem of his that says, you know, 20 men marching into a village. You know, like, and I'm like, 20 men marching into a village is a shit show. You know, like, that's not, like, who thinks of that? Because that poem is about, like, basically how utterance is a creative act. And, and, and for me, If Men Then is about how there is, I mean, I don't, I didn't think about this deliberately, but it's like, there is no creative act it's not like a Like, it's not like, oh, you know, post the apocalypse, like all representation is by nature violent. It's not that. It's that it's that it's really hard to write a poem about like the beauty and creation of the universe if your first reference to the sound of many men's feet or the idea that many men are going somewhere is that they are going to massacre a village. Like if that's the innate thought that follow. like 20 men, like, Do you hear 20 men and think anything but disaster? No, that's a disaster. Um, So I think that poem is about, it is about womanhood. It's about, it talks about a mind marred by by violence because a little bit that's like, I'm not sure how the, like what having been in so many conflict zones for so long, like how that's marked the way that I see the world. And it's all of that. You know, it's both, again, it's both personal and collective.
0: One of the things as well that kind of popped up in this reading was the idea of class or status. Um, yeah. So I was reading poems like pulling out was the image of those people not qualifying for tickets to the sky. And in Lapidusa with the idea of a million wrong calls, calls to the wrong God. Um, and it kind of harkened me to the idea of that you what you get in life depends on your station. So I wanted to know were there considerations of what class and status do to people um, individually and as a whole across the writing of these poems?
1: Oh, because I, like, I don't think anybody who has done the works that like any, you know, I came of age as a, like a foreign correspondent in an era that is no longer, which is when mostly white, Americans would show up places and be like tell me the story in a language i don't understand right like the the hubris of that is jaw dropping right not to take away from the work um or the intention but that model if not already dead is dying right because there are enough people who have access to the engines of power um and speak fluent English and blah blah blah. Like globalization has basically contributed to hasten the end of that. Um, but there's no way that you like, if, like for instance, when I think of the best best reporters on Syria now, I think of Syrian women, right? Like the immediately, or or maybe Arab women, but obviously fluent Arabic speakers. We don't need that interlocutor anymore. You know, we don't need Geraldo Rivera in a yacht off the coast of wherever. You know what I mean? Um, so, of course, it still happens, but it definitely happens less. And I am very aware of my role in that, like, as an example of that. Um, and, and 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 as an example of the death of it, you know? Um, but it's complicated, right? Because privilege allows, like... I got called out not so long ago about that. My most recent book in Appalachia, right? Like how, who are you to go to Appalachia and tell this story? And I'm like, you know, there's that. And then there's the, like all the resources and the magnifying, like, you know, bullhorn that I have as a journalist at this point, like, should the story not have been written? Because that's, that's what we're looking at, you know? So The complexity of these questions of our time are really very much alive for me in my daily life. I think they're reflected in the poetry. They're certainly reflected in that Lampedusa poem as well. You know, like the very end of it, right? Like, don't trust us. We care less than we seem to. You know, like we may give you a blanket for the first two minutes, but if you want a job, are you going to get it? Probably not, right? So anyway, these... Looking at, the, looking at where these realities of absolute inequality and privilege are still rampant, which is most places, and looking what, at where they're challenged, um, looking at my own role in them, I see poetry as a space to do that. And I have for a long time. And I guess, you know, I'm part of a group of poets, maybe just because it's a virtue of age, but like, that's what I've always written poetry about. I can't imagine like coming to the subject of social justice as like, this is a new thing to write about in poetry. Like when I see people talking about that, I don't get that at all because I don't think it's a new thing to be writing about in poetry.
0: Do you think that maybe the fracturing of the world that's mentioned in the description of the book is that there's this stripping away of humanness that now we are kind of putting a focus on, but for a very long time, we were kind of focusing on anything except or but the the humanness of each other. And now we're kind of using it as like a, a gateway in a way. Oh, what a great question. I hope so. Because,
1: I mean, I think we are, you know, the book makes light of, but follows this, this principle, this, you know, 5,000 year old principle that is in the Vedic tradition, right? So the so we the hindu the the precursor to the hinduism and buddhism really are these 5000-year-old texts that talk about the fourth age of man which we would be in now as an age of de- degeneration kali yuga um and they crazily foretell like climate change like periods of extreme drought and flooding um greed war um which obviously is the human condition writ large, but we are in one of those times. And if you ask me, where does hope lie? um, I would say in human encounter, you know, like where, where does, where, where is meaning? Where can it be besides between humans? Cause we don't, everything else needs to be stripped away. Either it has been stripped away or it needs to be stripped
0: away. And I'm glad that we're kind of getting to that point, because I thought throughout the collection, you had this amazing way um, of adding darkness and violence and tension, but also humor and kind of light and hope within the poems themselves. Um, so when you're including things, especially things that have happened in kind of war zones, in places that are, are fracturing at the foundation, how do you um, approach the page in a way that still respects the idea that these things happened? but not sensationalizing them in a way that would be disrespectful to the people who are actually living in it.
1: Right. Well, that's such a good question, Athena, because, you know, I mean, I, I have been in these spaces and writing poems about, about encounters there, my own and other people's, you know, for goodness, 20 years. Right. So like now I even wonder, I wonder with the Afghan poems and the problem of appropriation. Right. Um, because the like again it gets to that question like i was asked you know pretty publicly by someone like why why didn't the afghan women translate these poems themselves or like why was this a project that you needed to be involved in and you know i and the reality was i was like you know the reality is who, 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 how do you think that they are going to, like they need not a translator even of language, but a translator, they need like a, a champion here, right? Like we are a material culture. Like how, how does that final, how does that bridge get gap that, that, do you know what I'm saying? Like, how do we get over that? Um, So these are really, These are questions that I think about every single day. Um, And my work as a journalist is about representing people on a page, right? Uh, What they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they're wearing, what they look like, all of these aspects. And every one of those acts of description is layered with power, right? Um, And so I'm pretty used to, and I have no, I've so... I'm so far from solutions on this, but I'm pretty used to interrogating what I'm up to. Um, So I don't know if I'm really answering that question besides to say what I'm putting on the page is as I think where these poems succeed. And I think they're very alive. Like, I think if I were to say something positive that I actually believe about my poems, in addition to hoping that they're funny in this collection, is that they're extremely alive. And I think that's because I am, there's nothing settled here, right? There's nothing settled. I'm not trying to represent a state that was, I'm trying to wrestle with things as they
0: are. That makes sense. It does make sense. And I think the fact that you are taking that much consideration into what you're putting on the page in itself, honors the stories that you are helping put out in the world.
1: That's a great way to tell it. And, And I am not afraid to be challenged on what I'm doing, right? Like if somebody says that's appropriation, like Asma Safi died. This is a poem about, you know, her dad wrapping her body in a sheet and taking it to her village. Like, who are you to tell that story? I am perfectly comfortable. I have thought about that myself and I am perfectly comfortable talking about that. And so I think that that, processes, it's embedded in the poems, you know?
0: I have a couple of more questions for you. Um, So during my reading um, of the poem Gaia, I scribbled in the margins of the page, earth as a woman who encourages change, so men rid the world of them. So who rebirths the good now? So what do you think in terms of like, if this world that we are operating in within this book is kind of collapsing and crumbling, What kind of elements of rebuilding and reconciliation have you included? Are you hoping that readers come away with um, as they finish the collection?
1: You know, I think you touched on it with human interaction. Like, what is a poem successfully if it doesn't touch another human? Right. So, like, so I do believe that we are living in the midst of despair, in the midst of degeneration, which will only get worse, you know. Um, I don't want to use the word salvation cause it's so loaded, but I think that, that what keeps us going is our own experiences and our own capacity to touch one another and, and better the lots of one another, whether that is as simple as asking someone how they're doing, or it is championing a cause or, you know, acting in solidarity. Um, and, being in solidarity, being raw with one another, right? Um, owning the privilege of what we speak. Like when you asked me about privilege, I didn't know that you were going to ask about like, yes, to be like my role as a foreign correspondent in places of despair is encoded with all kinds of privilege. But my my life and pedigree as a white American is too. And, and so- as until we interrogate until we're ready to relinquish the power that comes along with those roles. And I do think we are, I do think that, but I, and I think that only happens in human encounter, right? I don't think that happens like on the stage at a Ted talk. Right. (laughs) So anyway, if the hope is to touch one another and to listen to one another in I'm sure in large ways, I'm sure that is true, but I am, I particularly am an interested in the small ways because I find them more authentic and less transactional.
0: Um, I think that you touch on that in the final poem of the collection Toward a New Year um, with the line, we were with the hulls, holding one another's dreams and sending a finger length of flame out into the rough bay. This idea that we are holding each other together um, and apart, and that if we each put that kind of little bit of light out into the world to find each other in this roughness, then we we should be okay um before I go, I'm gonna let you kind of wrap up your evening. Are there any particular stories or particular um voices you think really need to be heard that haven't been given a fair chance to be heard so far in literature? Afghan
1: women i mean that uh, i mean the 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 breadth and depth of a voice of wisdom you know if i look closer to home i could find so many but i don't know them as intimately as sitting in people's like houses and and i would say kitchens but they're just one room that is everything right and listening to these remarkable stories of resilience and humility and bravery and um and confidence that I don't, that like, that's like a treasure
0: trove of stories and voices. Thank you so, so much for your thoughts today. This was actually a lovely conversation. I learned a lot. And I think that our listeners are going to get a lot of great information, not only about your book, but also your philosophy as a writer and things that we can kind of pay attention to in our own movements through the world.
1: Thank you so much. That, for me, it was a really, a pure pleasure.
0: Thank you. I'm Athena Dixon, a co-host of the New Books and Poetry podcast via the New Books Network.